I'm amazed how many people own stocks. Welcome to the Playing Footsie Podcast. My name's Paul, and each episode, me and the lads get together to talk about the stocks, stock market news, and finance in general. Quick disclaimer, you shouldn't consider anything in this podcast as personal financial advice. If you need such advice, go to a financial advisor. And please remember, when investing in any form, your capital is at risk. So sit back, relax, and let the lads fill you in with all the stock market news of the week. The sucker's going up. All right. Then. <laughs> Welcome back to the Playing Footsie podcast. We are back with just three of us, Steve W and Steve D, uh, here on YouTube, Spotify, Audible, and the rest of them, whatever else there is out there. Today, we are going to talk about this week. Um, but first, Steve, what are you trying to surprise me? What, what did you want to do? Tell me. I have a super fun game show that um, everybody can play along with at home. I've, I, I was watching Squat Box yesterday and um, somebody popped up, um, a famous investor who we have talked about quite a bit on this show. And uh, he just uh, gave me an idea for a game show, which is um, I'm going to call You Suck at Chamath. <laughs> so, Chamath's six biggest SPACs. How far are they down year to date? Oh, God. Wow. Uh, so, so uh, I'm going to go through them. I'll read them out to you. Yeah, you give me on. a number. If you get within 3%, either way, I will give you a point. If you get it bang on, I give you two points. We'll see who wins. <laughs> are they all? Are they all actually down? Considerably. Oh, yeah. yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I would advise you to start north of thirty <laughs> percent. Thanks. Okay. So we'll start with Virgin Galactic. Recently, I believe oh, Ark has just sold out of this in 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 its entirety. Uh, it's it hasn't sold out completely yet but it's very very close it's got like twenty thousand shares or something stupid okay. now uh yeah, no one go... seems to go on sorry, sorry go on. steve i no one seems to have anything good to say about this company at the moment i heard them as a short idea the other day as well so i mean it feels like the tide is kind of really running against them at the moment for this kind of thing but um i haven't yeah, okay. kept up with it i haven't kept up with it other than i just keep seeing arc selling out uh, it's pretty much the only space company that's in the space ETF, and they are pretty much selling out of it. I, d- I haven't figured out why. I just keep seeing it, and I keep seeing the the percentage just going down and down and down. Can you can you enlighten me a little bit? What's has something changed? I've no idea. I don't really I don't want to second guess. I don't think anything's changed with the company. I think more the environment that they're in has changed. Um, but we might come back to that a little bit when we talk about stuff later. I'm ruining Steve's game by stalling here. Uh, so I'll start. I'll start the. So I'll go first this time, and you can go first next time. I'll start the bidding at down seventy percent. Yeah, today. I was going to go with seventy-four percent. Wow! So you both get a point. Virgin hey! Galactic is down 71% year to date. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you're scoring this, aren't you? Not me. Fine. I'm scoring it. So the next one is Clover Health. So Clover was quite heavily shorted. Um, I think it was even accused of being fraudulent by a couple of the um, the short reporters. Um, but yeah, how far is it down year to date? I think I saw this, but only, only like a few days ago at Fifty-six. That's what I think. Hmm. 
I was going to go a little bit less than Virgin Galactic because I sort of felt its short stuff was a little bit behind it. But let's try... Okay, I'll go with 60 this time then. Oof. Point to Briscoe, no point to Steve. Ah, Clover Health yeah. down 53%. Um, you got to remember with Clover Health is that it was probably about eight quid when it merged. So for it to go down much more than that is, uh, you know, it's quite yeah, considerable. Yeah, absolutely mental. And like Clover Health was one of the, it was probably the top two, wasn't it? Um, and it's supposed to be doing this, these amazing sort of things in the, in the, in the GP space, isn't it? Well, hmm. yeah, it's still GP in the US, isn't it? And, um, why? Why people have said it's just fraudulent because they're overstating the numbers and the network they've got. Is that what it was? Or, yeah, that yeah. was the main claim. The main claim was that it's overstating its its GP network. Yeah, that ah good. At least I do keep up with some stuff on your math. <laughs> Crazy. Go on. Next, next one. Next one on the list is Open Door, uh, which is his property buying company. Um, they have now merged and, and gone through. They're a, a, a sort of low-margin property business with Zero Moat um, and Zillow, Redfin, uh, et al. do exactly the same thing. How far are they down year-to-date? Yeah, I thought this was one of the ones I felt better about than the others. Um, yeah. Maybe I'll, try, uh, maybe I'll try 60 again. The way, the way they spoke about Open Door in the past, right? They said it was something completely different and it was going to revolutionize the whole right move, Zillow, all that. They, so it just does the same thing. It doesn't do anything different. It, it's basically a house buying program, essentially. Yeah. It's like you see so it in your pit. Use, yeah, you see it in your pit, but don't you? Yeah. 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 There was something about. AI yeah. that they were to figure out the price, market. yeah, to figure out an accurate price of the area, yeah, yeah. So it's basically you put AI onto any company. I'm gonna go 48 percent, zero points for both of you. Open door is down 56 percent year to date. Oh, oh, right in the middle there. Right so the felt like I was close within three. <laughs> you sure half a point for within five? No. <laughs> Don't forget, you can play this at home. Uh, let us know in the comments uh, how many you got right. <laughs> Next one. Especially if you've ever owned one of these, it would be helpful to know as well. Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to know that. Next one on the list is IPOD without a target. It's quite a small spack. No target. I don't believe it has a target at the moment. Oh, I thought it did. I thought it did. That's, okay, that one's not so far then, I take it. No. Okay. Ah, that, that was what... Oh, right, okay. Stop, yeah, go- stop Googling, Steve. <laughs> um, uh, it's it's been hit by the SPACs so I'm going to go uh, see the SPACs are staying at NAV the SPACs are staying at NAV so that's what I was thinking it can't go down it can't go much off where it was can it um, yeah I'm still going to go 32% but they, it should oh, still be okay. around NAV shouldn't it mm, I'll go 40 then I'll go for the more aggressive one this time Steve, within within a percentage point of a point. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> IPOD is down 44% year to date. Oh, Jesus true. Christ. Jesus Christ. So that leaves you with Sophie. Uh-huh. Right. That's the one we'll do next. Sophie uh, is, or Sophie, Sophie is their finance yeah. platform. Right? Banking platform, essentially, isn't it? Banking loans, finance, that kind of thing. I, I guess it's just JP Morgan with less money and more AI. Uh, and that was probably how they sold it in some in some way. Mm-hmm. 
Chamath was calling himself the next Warren Buffett, I think, probably mm-hmm. in December. And oh, the guy riles me, man. The guy really riles He riled me before all this crap, and he still does. He, he, I haven't... <laughs> I keep meaning to watch his. Um, I'm no, I know I'm stalling here. I keep meaning to watch his. He, he's back on podcasts. He's been quiet for a while, hmm. and so he started going out on podcasts. So I keep wanting to see it and see what crap he's spouting now. But SoFi, as far as I remember, was one of the better businesses and more popular. So I'm gonna I'm gonna go low again. Thirty five, thirty five percent. Uh, that's annoying because I think that's probably close to where I wanted to be. So I agree with the more popular thing. The only other Good thing enough. I know about them that you haven't mentioned is that they uh, they have the naming rights on the new Los Angeles football stadium that the Chargers and the Rams both play in. That's called SoFi, which is why I call it SoFi, which oh, makes yeah. me think they might be kind of popular. Um, uh, yeah, your beloved AT and T, I think, have the Dallas Cowboys for their naming rights stadium. Um, that's I didn't Texas AT and T. I didn't know that about the Cowboys because I, I, I'm guessing Tony Romo is long gone by now. <laughs> so, how, how I don't even know what Tony... sport we're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, none of that is really helping me to price so far, if I'm honest. So, <laughs> uh, what did you say, Paul? 35? 35. You go, go okay. 36, aren't you? <laughs> no, I'm going to go 32. So I'll go just sort of towards the, uh, the edge oh, of your range. Are you pricing yourself down with 4% or something? Go on. No points to either. No, SoFi is down 46% year to date. Oh, it's one of the worst performers. And the last one... finished yet. Oh, one no. one <laughs> last one is his big SPAC, the flagship SPAC, um, IPOF, which is, I think it was one of the biggest SPACs, um, one of the biggest SPACs going. It has sort of been linked to a target. It was meant to be meant to be something really big and really interesting. I think it's ended up being a gym group of some description. Yeah. Um, Down 45%. That's it. That's all I got. No idea about it. No idea what I'm looking for. No, no idea no, what I'm no thinking clue. about. 45 46. is a number. Oh, fuck 46% hell. for me. <laughs> 46 for me. Well, both of you get a point. Um, <laughs> IPOF is down 44%. So oh, that makes Paul the winner 3-2. to two. Way. Unbelievable. I landed right Jamath next to math. three of them as well. Chamath <laughs> <laughs> math for you there, right? Oh, man. So I was going to say, at the beginning of the year, Chamath said, and I quote, I'm about to really fuck some shit up, just FYI. <laughs> and what he meant was, yeah. your portfolio is if you bought his spats. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I always like to give people the benefit of the doubt. This could be just a, a drop. But how much... How much would, should we really expect some of our stocks to drop by? Because in my opinion, with my style of investing, I'm trying to keep it maybe at 10%. And then when there's a big market crash, I could expect maybe 30, 40, or just whatever the market goes down. Should we be, we be buying into these stocks and thinking, okay, they're going to be good in the future. They, you know, they're going to be amazing. But how much would you expect your stocks to go down, really, realistically? It's not really a matter of expectation for me because I'm currently seeing it. Um, <laughs> but I I don't really care how much they go down with. I am relatively happy with the prices I've paid for 
pretty much all of the stocks in my portfolio. I'm happy that I know the companies well enough, and I'm happy that I look at that company and see in 10 years' time that it might be, uh, in the case of Teladoc, a, a 15 pence company today. But um, in the future, I see it being, you know, a, a conglomerate, 100 billion, 150 billion, 200 billion, whatever. I see it being way bigger than it is today. So price to me really doesn't matter. Um, too much because I know in the future that they're going to be bigger. So that's where I am. What's your biggest negative right now? Because I can tell you mine as well. Um, I think I'm probably down 30 odd percent on Teladoc at the moment. Yeah. Teladoc's a big one, isn't it? Teladoc as well, I'd always say that it might not be justified. I mean, it's it's a really strong business. It's just, I, think, I think it's just been priced too high in all the excitement of last year and i think a lot of the stocks from last year all got priced a little bit too high and exciting i've been part of some of them i think uh, so i have my general portfolio accounts that everybody sees on my youtube channel Uh, i think the lowest i'm down on that is about two percent on any company Uh, most of uh, it's been really pretty sound for me but I have this other invest account where half of them are jokes, half of them are really high speculative. I think the worst I'm down on in somewhere in there is about 55, 60% on, might be Transmedics or something like that that I'm really low on. So I, I am kind of wor- wondering, how how low do we expect stocks to go, <laughs> really? It's mad, isn't it, what we're seeing? Yeah, no idea. <laughs> I was going to say, it's because if you look at sectors in particular, certain sectors have seen really, really rampant increases. And it's no shock to see those that have seen the biggest increases, i.e. the tech self sector, the the health tech sector as well, is one of the areas that's seen rampant. Because it's no shock to see these things coming back down to earth. And even with the IPO companies that have launched with huge valuations, like bigger than than we would even have dreamt of. I mean, I remember when Airbnb was uh, going live and Steve and I, I think, got to 45 on the prospectus and thought if it goes live at 45 to 65, we'll be, we'll be good for this. And it, and it went at 240. But the thing is, is that it's slowly coming back down. But you've also got to remember that it raised a shitload more cash than it would have done at 45 or 65. Mm. So there's, you know, maybe you've got to factor in that little bit of extra cash when you're looking at, you know, valuing these companies. The thing is, though, is that cash that's been generated isn't from their business. I know it's a good business and it probably will be good to reinvest, but it's not particularly from their business. And I suppose when we're talking about your math math, we're thinking about companies that, don't really exist yet right they, you know ipof doesn't exist it's got to find a target and we're getting to that point now aren't we where these companies are like like you said a few episodes again SPACs are just raising the cash and then they're going out and spending it on lavish meals and advertising and whatever chamath wants to do with it and they're still not making a target and the thing is is when it gets to that two-year mark, they either have to pay all the money back, and that's paying all back all the money that they've already spent, or they've got to find a target. And if you're in something like IPOF right now, you must be thinking, there isn't any target out there that Chamath is going for, and he's not going to give you that money back either. So you're going to end up with some crap company in 
one and a half years time and they're gonna they're gonna feed it to you on this like nice big plate and it's just got a nice big curd in the well, middle of it it's worse than that though isn't it because on trading two and two you can't vote against the merger and also you can't actually choose to redeem your shares for cash if you don't approve of the merger so there is uh there is a sort of double-edged sword to using these sort of commission-free platforms yeah so you're kind of at the will whim of well, the U.S. traders really—they mm. decide. Not that the share, the votes that you would have would really. I, I I still don't believe that any retail investor who's watching this really has any real voting power on anything in no. the market. And it's the same thing with people in the comments and stuff. Yeah, you you know who you are. Whoever comments on, on things saying that like trading two on two is taking part in market manipulation. I'm thinking. Trading Two or Two has a billion in assets. Like it has one billion. That's in comparison to the rest of the market. That's absolutely nothing. Mm. How can it possibly be taking part in market manipulation of penny stocks? Because it ju it just doesn't have the sway that's necessary. And yeah, I mean, it's I, I mean, I don't mind people commenting. It's okay. It's just it's getting annoying now, guys. I don't know. And this week has been pretty terrible, right, for most people. In my portfolio, I think I'm about a grand down. I've lost probably 2-3% on my portfolio this week. And that's been, that's been quite hard for me because everything has pretty much only gone up for the past year. How are you finding it this week? I, I think we had a bit of a reversal because we're on Thursday right now. So we had a minor reversal maybe in the tech stocks i haven't actually kept up with it all day because i've been so busy what's been going on this week tell me yeah stuff's been coming down and i was listening to a motley fool podcast which is the market foolery one which is my favorite of the motley fool podcast they were talking about what to do when you kind of like um when you see companies that you own going down basically and their view was that basically you just sit there um they didn't say buy particularly which was interesting um a thought being that look if you liked it before you must like it now but they just said look sit there and if you like the company and there's nothing going wrong with the company if it's just general market movement coming down uh just sit there and wait uh you've got good companies if you bought them at the right price you'll be okay uh and just hold tight and wait for the next thing to happen because this will pass uh and we'll be back in the bit of looking at everything going up and especially unprofitable tech stocks going up uh, before too long, I reckon. Yeah, you think we're going to return to probably not 2020 levels, but somewhere between there and there and everyone, everything is going to just start gradually expanding its PE again. It's, it's funny, really, because the selling is ferocious when it happens, and it's ferocious, and every day it's again, it's, you, you know, you'll, you'll think, you'll look at your stock and you'll think, well, that, that isn't going to go down anymore. That one has been smashed to pieces, and, and you log in the next day, and the volume is super, super high, and it's ferocious again, and the selling, and everybody's selling, everybody's bearish, and it's really odd. One day it just stops. Mm. Um, and that's it, really. That's what you're waiting for now. You, you, you're accumulating the businesses that, you know, you think are now at great value. And the only the other thing you can do is is wait. So there's an exercise that I do that helps me keep invested, which is pretty good for growth investors, I think, because you know we we like the volatile up. We like the days when one of our stocks jumps up thirty percent, but we hate the days when it goes down thirty. So there's always it's always good to have something to um, go back to. So one of the things I do is I write just a few lines, two, three, four lines about why I invested in a stock. 
And when the stock goes down 30%, I pull up that stock and I look at those four lines and I, and I want to see, has any of those things changed? Any of those reasons I invested in the stock has changed? If the only thing that's gone down is the share price, no matter how compelling that feels like to look at a share and think, this, this, this stock must be shit, it's down 30%, even if it's been up 100% over the last month. Um, to check those three or four lines and 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 just realize that it is just a share price and it is a it is a mental thing it's complete mental gymnastics really to 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 sort of understand that the share price actually means pretty much nothing to the business um and and you're seeing at the moment some of the earnings reports that you're getting out um from really really good companies and the the share price is dropping 15 20% i think one of the key things i would say is just keep your eyes on the business and just forget about the share price. For me, so, this Steve, is a bit of a lesson for buying your companies at proper valuations. I know we talk about growth versus value. Value, in my opinion, is much easier to you know, value companies based on cash flow, based on P ratios, whatever metrics you want to use. I think it's much easier. And I find growth investing very, very hard to do because I, I, I don't know what the tan the total addressable market of a company exactly is going to be. I, I find it so hard to get my head around it. I imagine others do as well. And this thing what you do is very, very compelling to write down exactly why you bought this company, but it also means that you need to have got into the company with a good thesis as well, right? Uh, a lot of people out there are just pressing that buy button on the company because, I don't know, they watched a good YouTube video or they, they found they've done a lot of due diligence, which is a term that I really hate because I, the term due diligence now has just become so thrown around and so just... Uh, it just doesn't have the same strength as it used to. It now means that you watched a couple of YouTube videos and now you know everything about the company. Mm, read a post on Reddit. It's yeah. it's not like what apparently you're supposed to do. And Rid take some people take six months. I I remember on legal in general, I took about six months to figure out figure it out, and I missed out on so much capital gain. I wish I had sort of gradually built in. And sometimes I do that. I've kind of started figuring that that's what I do. I build into these stocks now. But it, it took me ages. And I don't think people are realizing that. And I think sometimes when we make, rec well, we don't never make recommendations, but when we talk about stocks that we've got into, I just want you to think, and anybody who's listening to this, just to step back and really, really think about these companies. Really, If you don't know the names of the head or the CEO of that company, then you probably haven't done enough uh, research into that company right now and I would say that maybe I fall foul of that as well sometimes but that's my mistake and I'm willing to make that I've gone on a bit of a tangent there again I keep doing this don't I <laughs> Steve here's a question about your four or five things that you write down I mean here's what worries me or used to worry me more still worries me a bit when my stuff starts going down I start wondering whether maybe I bought them at the wrong price. So is anything on your kind of four or five things to do with the price that you bought it at before, as opposed to things like, it's got a massive moat, there's loads of recurring revenue, 
um, etc., etc. You get the idea. Yeah, you see, the thing is, is that the way you invest and the way I invest are very different from each other. See, because I, I do a little bit of value investing. So I, there is the core of my portfolio is based around stuff that I think is at really, really great prices. Whereas growth stocks is more about predicting the future. So it's a little bit more about astrology than it is about science. Um, so yeah, so I, I will look at I will look at a company like um, Teladoc and I will look at their um, basically their revenue growth stats like that, EPS, cash flow, whatever I can get out of it, and um, try and predict what what the future looks like for them if they continue on that rate. Whereas with you, you're very much looking at the present and a little bit of the past. Um, your future predictions probably don't weigh as much on the whether you buy the stock as mine do, um, because you're looking for current cash flows and future cash flows. Where I don't really care about current cash flows, but I do care about the future cash flows. So yeah, mine's a little. That's probably why mine's more risky because mine is a lot of guesswork, where yours is more scientific. Yeah, you said risky. I would say yours is harder, uh, basically. I mean, in the case of a lot of the companies I own, it's pretty clear what they're going to do next year. They're going to do pretty much the same thing as they did last year. I mean, knock off a bit for the kind of pandemic and stuff, but they're not going to go massively up or down one way or another. So in my case, it kind of amounts to looking for things that people aren't really looking at at the moment because they're all getting distracted by um, SoFi and uh, Tesla and Virgin Galactic and all these kind of things. Uh, so that kind of makes sense to me, I guess. I think in my case, it's because the way I get shaken out of stocks a bit too easily and start making mistakes is because I think I shouldn't really have bought it at that price anyway. And now it's gone down and I was it was kind of overpriced before anyway. So what reason do I have for thinking it's going back up other than it might? Um, and that's kind of what worries me a bit more, I think. So when I'm writing down my list of here's the stuff I'm buying, um, I tend to do something similar, although I tend to think, uh, here's why I'm buying this here this time, and then next earnings I'll update that depending on how that kind of goes. So if we have a really good quarter, well, maybe the amount I'll pay for it will go up, or and so on and so forth. And I think that's something that I'll, I can probably relate to there as well, because the risk, I think, with these value companies is the sideways movement or the downwards movement over extended periods of time. Because, you know, I always go through fast graphs, and I look at some of the companies, you know, you can look at AT&T, but other company, there's other worse companies that since 2000 have only either gone up. GSK was a big, um, a good example of that. It's a company that has very slowly lost money over the past 10 to 15 years, just very slowly. And you probably wouldn't have noticed it. Had Melvin the footsie again. Yeah. I, I know, I know. We're talking about the FTSE again, but it's it's a good example. GSK is it's the, the dividends essentially saved you, but he's still not. He's still even behind inflation on GSK over the past fifteen years. It's not to say where the price is going to go now or or never, but with these value companies, that is the possibility that you need to get that capital appreciation with it as well. So I always look at companies that. I hope are hopefully going to grow as well, not just the companies that you get the dividend. If if a company is going to stay flat for the next ten years, but it's going to pay a seven percent dividend, I can think I can think about that because you're beating inflation. In fact, you're beating the market on that case as well. There are just very few gems like that. When you go to growth, you're listening. You're largely listening to what these CEOs are saying. 
And let's take Virgin Galactic as an example. They are saying that they're going to be able to do 200 flights a year at 125 grand a piece. I am kind of making those numbers up to a point. I, I remember seeing an article a, a while ago, and they, they won't be accurate. But it was around that number, and I'm thinking, I don't think you are. I, I don't. I have. I, I would struggle to think that you're going to be able to pull that off. I mean, they can't even get it off the ground at the moment, as far as I can tell. So, you you kind of believing what they're saying to you. And I, I tell you what, another good example is a company that I'm invested in, which is FRX Forest Road Acquisition, and we've got Beachbody, who they're merging with now. I don't take their projected revenue growth. I'm taking it with a pinch of salt because they're saying it's going to grow 30% year on year. And I don't think that's going to... I'm happy to bring that down and make that less. And if I'm still happy with that revenue growth, but you know, pull it back a little bit and go, okay, maybe if they only make 20% revenue growth a year, is that still a good deal? And that's kind of where I'm trying to get at with growth. I don't follow their total address, uh, addressable markets and I don't follow their revenue projections. But I could maybe take theirs as a benchmark and then go, okay, does 10% under still get me what I need or 20% under still get more I need? Do you get where I'm coming from on this one? That's... Yeah, there's a bit of a difference. I, I wouldn't have either of those companies that you mentioned as real growth companies. I, I think both of those are extreme speculation. Um, I think Virgin Galactic has no proof whatsoever of of doing any of the things it says it's going to do. And FRX, I, I, I don't really know an awful lot about it, so it'd be difficult to comment. But the growth companies that I talk about when, when I'm talking about growth are companies that are already established, that are already executing, but they might not quite be profitable yet. Now, that might be some of that might be engineered losses. Um, some of that might be, hey, we've made a shitload of money this year. Let's build a brand new factory. Um, you know, that's the kind of company that I, I have as growth. So yeah. my things like my specula- speculative stocks are like the Nanoxes, um, Transmedics, um, companies like that, essentially. Um, they only take up a fraction of my portfolio. It's probably less than 5% all in all when you add them all together. But with growth, I'm looking for sort of mid mid to established companies that are growing at 30 plus percent revenue per year. That's where I, I would have growth. So I think people like Chewy, Chewy isn't going to go bust on us. Uh, I think that's very unlikely. All that you'll see Chewy now is it establishing out to be a very good business. How good of a business that will be depends on, you know, the competition, how well they can execute on on the you know the plans they've got, the auto ship, their pet food ranges, things like that. Who they acquire, um, back box acquire back box, um, <laughs> but yeah, that'll be you know that that they're the sort of companies I look at in my growth portfolio. So I, another one I like is Ola, um, which is just IPO. Yeah. Um, now that's that's pretty cheap today. It's down at twenty odd dollars. It's ten dollars under its IPO. It's announced to one hundred and thirty percent revenue growth. It's signed on another bunch of corporate clients. It looks like a really decent company that is executing and profitable. So is that going to go away? Is that it's probably more, it's made more money than DoorDash. It's made probably more money than Uber Eats because Uber Eats only makes money or Uber only makes money when it sells parts of its business. And to point out, they're not 
We're talking about Olo stock here. I don't know if anybody's known about it. I would say this is one that's flying under the radar because there <laughs> was not a lot of bangs and whistles and fireworks about this IPO. It kind of just happened. <laughs> and Olo is a stock that is not like DoorDash and it's not like uh, Just Eat. It's a, co it's a company that is making centralized apps for the takeaway company specifically, isn't it? It's not like a, a, a one place eats all. It's, it's very specifically so you buy it. So they make an API for uh, KFC, wouldn't they? And it would be a very personalized experience for them. You take you take the floor to explain it a bit better. Yeah, so Olo is targeting corporate customers, so it's not interested in Bob's Burgers, you know, down the road who, who sells fifteen cheeseburgers a night. It's after big American companies, your Dairy Queens, etc. And the 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 sort of space they've identified, and it would have been great to have Zach here um, to talk about it, is that they really are interested in getting that customer experience back to these major brands. So the problem is, is that with your Ubers and your DoorDashes is that you're outsourcing the customer experience through these companies. And if you misdeliver, uh, you know, you misdeliver an ice cream and uh, the customer complains and Uber refuses to uh, refund them, that customer might never come back to, you know, Dairy Queen again. Uh, if it was Dairy Queen, Dairy Queen would say, hey, get that guy a new ice cream out. You know what I mean? Fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And that's the idea is that you bring the customer experience back in. Not only is it way cheaper, um, Olo also ties in with your Uber Eats and your DoorDashes anyway. So basically all you're doing is you're bringing the customer experience in-house, you're managing it, Olo custom build you um, basically a front of house and then they channel the deliveries out through the DoorDashes and the Uber Eats anyway but as far as the end user is aware it's you know it's your Dairy Queens that dropped off, it's your Burger King, it's your McDonald's, it's your KFC. They don't actually have any physical dealings with Uber Eats. So save on the service fee, it's a little bit cheaper. Olo gets to bring its customer service in-house gets to basically you know control the customer experience and um yeah it looks like a really great company i must i must admit it's it... yeah and it's good to good to say here that what we've done is we've separated speculation and investing here we're mm. going trying to move away from that gambling mindset and we're trying to and this is something that both growth and value do mix on here I know we always have this growth versus value divide all the time, which we sh and we shouldn't really, should we? Because when we're investing in these growth companies, fair enough, we're not making high cash flow yet or anything, but we can, if you can see a very good trail and you've got a historical trail that shows maybe negative cash flow, but at least less and less negative cash flow year on year, then you might have a company that's is actually traceable, is actually calculable, and that's where growth investing comes in, and that's where we think about these companies and we can see their future. However, when you're looking at IPOF and you're buying into IPOF or any of any of those companies, really, I don't think any of the Chamaspacs are really proper profitable companies. I might be slightly wrong there. I thought Sophie was a pretty good one i can't remember exactly but in any of these companies you have to realize where your speculation is and then you've got to allocate your assets and the asset risk appropriately with that as well uh 
someone help me out there because I haven't got anything else. Well, to I was say, but... I was going to say one of the issues that I've I've got is that, and it's pop, it's going to it's a little bit of a pop at you, Paul. I know we've waited for fifteen episodes to have a pop at each other, but um, <laughs> it's one of the things that sort of irks me about dividend investing. If the only thing that you don't like about a business is the fact that it isn't giving you three p a quarter. That's absolutely nuts. Do you know what I mean? And that's why I prefer the way I do it to the way anybody else does it. And I know it's entirely personal and cash flow is great for an investor, but there is something about looking down my portfolio. And I, I, to be honest with you, somebody told me the other day, oh, you've got DR Horton, their, um, their ex-dividend dates next week. I was like, I didn't even realize I paid a dividend because that's not something I even look at. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It, it, it's just, if that is the only thing you don't like about a company, then it's, it's a madness style to me. It's maddening. <laughs> yeah, and um, I don't disagree with you in any way. And I don't think I ever would have disagreed with you in any way. Uh, the dividend investing thing for me and I have explained, and you will, you will already know what I'm about to say here, but I think for me, it, it is a funnel. It's a funnel into good companies because I don't trust myself. I don't understand the way you're, you've got it. And I, I, I just see growth investing in its, as you get to the more riskier and riskier stocks. And I would include something like Teladoc in this. I, I find it so, so much harder to figure out where my return on investment is going to come from. And so uh, doing this dividend investing thing is my sort of training wheel. That's how I feel about it at the moment. And I, I do think that what I am finding is I'm just reducing my pool. I'm reducing my search size down. And because there's, th there's still thousands, there's still thousands of them. Uh, I'm just not looking at millions anymore. So I've managed to just slice off um, a million uh, companies of my pool. And now I'm doing my one in 20 Peter Lynch thing where I just I look at 20 companies and see. And hopefully out of those 20 companies, there's one there that is priced correctly, is going to give me reasonable returns, has high cash flow. You know, these are the things that I'm looking for a bit for a business. And also you have that next little bit is the future relevance the qualitative part of the business well that's the that's the beauty of dividend investing though, is that it can be incredibly formulaic because there yeah. is things that you are looking for um boxes to tick and you know if you wanted to be formulaic about investing dividend investing is is the way to go i would i would say yeah, and lots of very good resources to help you find that formula too. Uh, lots of good dividend websites mm -hmm. that will uh, nicely present things like dividend cover for you, how consistently it's been paid, how much it's been growing, uh, what their kind of debt's like and that sort of thing. The kind of things that you'd be really especially interested if you're looking for a kind of dividend formula. I'm not exactly sure quite how Paul looks at these sorts of things, but <laughs> if you're a dividend investor and you want a formula, there are lots of websites that will kind of help you find one. Yeah, let's let's make it very clear i think i've passed the the baby dividend investor style I've, i think i've passed that first hurdle where you just buy anything for the yield and make sure it's got a good payout ratio or dividend cover i think i've passed the baby step version of it uh and now like i said it's it's more of this tool for me to go okay i've got a good company that's got a very good track track record I'm not looking at dividend kings or aristocrats or <laughs> aristocrats. aristocrats. <laughs> That's just because I watched that film like <laughs> when I was younger. Aristocrats. Um, 
I'm not looking at anything like that. And I'm not looking at a, a yield and going, oh my God, they're paying 7%. That's 7% a year. Oh my God, I've, I've got to buy it. I've got to buy it. Because yield doesn't matter. I've, I've said this, even though I'm a dividend investor, yield doesn't matter. And I know that's confusing to a lot of people and, and quite bad, but the Andre Jick style of dividend investor where you just buy old companies, you basically buy anything with a high yield in the S&P 500 or you go down the VHYL, is that the um, high dividend hmm. ETF, Vanguard high D dividend ETF? I don't even know what's in that. I haven't got a clue. I just know that most of the companies in that won't be companies that I want to have. Yeah. I would guess it would be a lot of cigarette companies. Oh, that's a guess. Um, yeah. But I yeah, seem to remember be, they feature in there quite a bit. Uh, Bat, EPD as well, which is a very popular mm. one on the Discord. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of people on the Discord are loving the pipeline companies at the moment. Yeah, so, I own EPD. Oh, do you? Yeah. <laughs> So, Steve, like as as a value investor now, then are you looking at any of these tech stocks and thinking there's some value yes. there somewhere? Yeah, very much so. I mean, we've talked a bit about how much this growth value stuff is kind of nonsense. Um, it's usually thought of as a way of dividing stocks, as far as I can tell, into things that are supposed to be kind of cyclical in a certain way. Uh, that's the mm -hmm. same thing as value, apparently, um, and things that are not, which is supposed to be growth, basically. And as a value investor, I kind of feel like I don't really want to buy value stocks at a time when they're doing very well. And if you're thinking, look, cyclical things are going to go up and they're going to go down and they go up a bit more and they're going to go down. Don't buy them when they're at the top. Um, when people kind of are looking at them, uh, buy them at the point when no one's looking at them, if you're going to buy those kind of things. And the thing to look at when cyclicals are doing well, look at other stuff. So I'm looking at about four things at the moment, which is there's a common theme coming through here. See if you can work out what it is. Uh, Tyler Technologies, Viva, Mercado Libra, and Stoneco. Um, and those are four um, companies that have a few things in common, but they are mainly tech stocks that are towards the kind of middling cap range. So something like Tyler Technologies is a, a kind of theme I've got interested in lately, which is a company that provides kind of government software. Um, and it occupies a kind of middle ground where it's not really worth it to bigger software companies to come and compete with them because it's not particularly worth it if they do manage to take all of Tyler's business. Um, but they're also kind of big enough and moaty enough to push out anyone uh, trying to compete with them from below. So they occupy quite a nice sort of space there. Um, and there's a few companies and other sort of industries that I've been interested in like that. They've been coming down a bit lately. I've got a kind of price in mind for them. They're not there yet. But... Um, those are the kind of places that I'm looking at the moment. Similar things are true of Viva, Healthcare Tech, Stoneco, um, kind of Steve's favourite Latin American fintech stuff, uh, and Mercado Libra, more of Steve's favourite Latin American um, Amazon, basically. Yeah, Mercado Libra has been a been a hot one. I imagine it's Cathy Woodstock. Uh, probably it is somewhere, I think. It's now at about 1300 which is a, a price it's been at a little while ago, from what I remember mm. of things. I think it's probably the price mean you sold it at, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, you got your chance to buy back in and, and recoup your recoup your FOMO losses in, <laughs> in that way, or your opportunity cost, sorry, if we're, if we're going to be smart. Any of the fangs? Any of the fangs looking good? Because I think some of them are looking very good. What are you thinking? I think all of them. Yeah? Pretty much, yeah. All, of, all them. of them. Yeah. Netflix? Ah... Uh, I, I, I wonder whether we're implicitly forgetting a fang here. Yeah, Netflix. And Microsoft. Yeah. <laughs> no, not that one. I meant Netflix. <laughs> I thought you meant Netflix. I thought you, yeah, because I was going, all of them? 
No, it can't be Netflix. <clears throat> Even Netflix, because I'm half tempted to play that as a blip. Mm-hmm. Ooh, yeah. yeah, that's fair enough. I, I think out of the fangs, if you are going from my perspective on the formulaic way to dress a company, uh, Netflix is the only one that doesn't tick any of the boxes because of its cash flow. But obviously you're seeing that it is going to be cash flow positive by the end of this year. It might even be cash flow positive now. I do think that that is one of the ones where you can, you know, you can put your growth investor hat on and go, okay, this thing is now going to start really going from generating, you know, uh, it was it was organized losses or uh, architectural losses, wasn't it? That it's always had. So now it might change from that. It might start going into its earnings growth and trying to create more there. So possible i i don't know enough about it it's that. it's the buying back of stock i don't like about netflix that's the thing i don't want it to do i want it to mm. pay its bonds if it's got some spare cash i want it to mm. buy some more content buy better content i don't want it to be buying back its stock yeah so it's, it is thinking of shareholder return on that on that point and it feels like that any of those top stocks, those top six stocks, that's that's what they have to do. Do you not think that there's a culture up there that they've, that they've just got to show that they think their stock is undervalued? And the best way that they, do, that they can do that is by buying back their own stock. It's like a Berkshire Hathaway idea. It's, it's sending a message to investors that we're not scared of buying at high prices. We have super confidence in our business. <laughs> There's definitely a culture in that kind of thing. Apple have been doing it quite a bit as well. I mean, Steve mentioned Netflix's buybacks. I'm not a fan of Apple's. That's the main reason I can't seem to get over the line with them. I struggle in my head, and this is, again, knowing things in enough detail, which I don't, to really spot the difference between people buying things back because they think it's a good idea and people buying things back because their bonus is a function of the EPS and having fewer shares outstanding drives up the EPS which is not good if you're an investor. I'm not saying it's one or the other at Apple. I'm saying I don't know which it is, and that makes me kind of a little bit uh, wary of the buyback there. Yeah, I mean, for me, Google Google is probably the most, the best value in the fangs right now, in my opinion. I know Steve, Steve D is going to say Amazon, of course. I know you are. Uh, but uh, I think Google, it's close. I think, yeah, I think... I it is close, definitely is close, because Amazon could just turn off the investment machine tomorrow, couldn't it? I did see a very interesting article, actually, uh, from someone, I can't remember who, who it was from, but uh, it read that now Jeff Bezos is leaving, it adds into a new generation of what Amazon is, and part of his leaving deal might be that Amazon just starts to pay a dividend. On top of that, to give Jeff, Jeff Bezos, just simply give Jeff Bezos a bit of currency. And do we think that they really will change that culture? Because Amazon is successful for one reason, right? He's selling 10 billion of stock a year. How much currency does he need? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he, he'd, uh, well, he, he's got the divorce, so <laughs> I don't know how much alimony he's got to pay. No, he hasn't got to pay anything because she just took it took half of his net worth didn't she um yeah you're right how much does one person really need to live off and what is he going to spend it all on uh, maybe he's going to reinvest it into 
Blue Origin or something like that. Oh, I thought you were going to say AT&T and Enterprise Products to get a dividend out of them. (laughs) Well, and get his retirement money. He's he's reached his FI number. Yeah, he's reached his uh, financial independence number, and now he's just trying to store his money. Can you imagine on CNBC, Jeff Bezos accidentally buys EPD? (laughs) All of it. it. Yeah. (laughs) He just, yeah, he, he could buy any any company out there, and well, uh, just it's mad, isn't it, to think? I, it was just an interesting article. I didn't believe it for a second because the point of Amazon is to run at that loss, it's to pay no tax, and it's to grow consistently. and And it's a business. If if it if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And I, I think Amazon is going to carry on that way, but it's just going to do it with AWS rather than. Um, the amazon.com services but yeah i i think google is the one google i sit and look at every day and go i think i'm gonna buy that today and then it goes up and i go oh it's gone up (laughs) it's been incredibly resilient during this tech sell-off well all of them have really i mean they've moved a couple of percent here and there but in terms of you're looking at stuff that's down 40 percent from its highs 50 percent some stuff's even 60 percent most of Chamath's stuff, um, yeah. it's they've been incredibly resilient to have barely budged. I think Google has even probably appreciated over this period. I think it's insulting that you can compare, or people are comparing Amazon, Google, Facebook, Netflix, Apple, and putting them in, in the same boat as companies like Tesla. And any and really any spacks on top of that, you know, I I think it's pretty insulting because they're not the same businesses. Tesla is a, is an exceptional business in in what it has going forward, but it's it isn't creating the same revenues and cash flow. And I know that's oh, it's controversial to say as normal, but um, I think is I it? think it's a bit insulting. Well, yeah, is it, it is it is because you've got you've got it's it's the tenth. Well, it's probably the eighth most expensive company in the S&P 500 right now. And so someone's supporting it. But it's not controversial to say it's not making any money because uh, it, it isn't. No, it is. You don't understand, mate. It's an energy company. Yeah, but it you might it, No, but it might do in the future. But it's not controversial to say right now it makes the vast majority of its profit by selling either Bitcoin or energy credits. <laughs> but look, hey, that's the business, isn't it? You know, it's hard to knock that. And uh, if you said to me at the beginning of it that Elon was going to basically magic money out of thin air from Bitcoin to build new factories with it, I would have said, "Oh yeah, go on." And how's he going to do that? And he has. Yeah. So it's very difficult to criticize. Yeah, and I think there's probably a sense in which Tesla is, in some ways, not that different to any other unprofitable tech thing. I mean, it's only that they're bigger in a certain sense, that people feel the right to kind of complain about them in a certain way. Plenty of other companies aren't making any uh, money in terms of um, uh, net earnings or something like that. Um, And that's fine, apparently. This is the way that we're supposed to think about these companies. We're not supposed to think of them as optimized for profit and start looking at PE, non-existent PE multiples and so on. We're yeah. supposed to look at price to sales and that kind of thing. And that's the same for Tesla as it is for anybody else. And we might think that Tesla's going to grow really well. We might think it's not going to grow well enough. But that's just the same set of questions that we would ask about something like, say, Spotify or Airbnb, um, I guess. Yeah, and the way and that's why i wanted to separate the two because i don't think amazon is the same company as plug power i don't think it's the same co- company as spotify i you know i don't think they're in the same league and i don't 
I don't think it's right that people are going, oh, there's a big tech sell-off. But if it's, if it's big tech going down 2%, then maybe that's a problem. But if it's all that lot, if it's all the others going down uh, 5, 6, 7, 10, 15, 20% in a day sometimes, I think it's insulting to the fangs that these are the that they all get lumped together in this one big Nasdaq. I'd... Yeah, Amazon's nothing like those companies. I mean, Amazon, for one thing, has a big cash machine attached to it called AWS, and it doesn't really matter if their web shop thing doesn't make any money or doesn't make a uh, good margin, put it that way. I mean, it mm. has the big advantage of, I don't care how long it takes me to make any money. I can just sit here and drive down prices until all the competition goes away, uh, using AWS to just bail us out, and that's worth it to us because... At the end, we'll have the only web shop anywhere uh, that anyone's using. And we'll have um, Alexa in more homes of people than vote, I think. Uh, and that's mm. how these companies kind of work. So looking at Amazon and thinking, ah, oh, it's not making that much money yet. They've clearly got a strategy, which is, well, let's just push everybody out in the market and then we'll worry about the thing afterwards. And you can argue on that on antitrust grounds or any other grounds that you like. But that's clearly the plan, as far as I can see. And it's working. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm just um, I'm going to throw this one on top of you now because it's just come in. Disney misses on subscriber expectations, and parks are still hurt by COVID restrictions. I'm just getting the uh, earnings in, so earnings per share seventy nine cents versus twenty nine cents expected. So I've just lost it again there. So let's just bring it back up. And revenue, this is dodgy with your internet. Yeah, it, well, no, it's actually just a big advert that CNBC is bringing up on top of it, which is really annoying. Uh, and revenue, 15.61 versus 15.87 expected. So it's missed revenue, but it's uh, crushed on earnings, apparently, which is an odd one. Uh, but let's see it subscriber, because the reason why Netflix failed or went down is because of its low subscriber. Uh, it's coming at, in at 103 million paid subscribers, and I can't tell you what that is up. Uh, it was expected 109 million. So what's going to happen in the morning? Give us a, give us a rundown, and, we'll, and people on Sunday can listen to this and go, ah, you're huh. wrong. Uh, do you want <laughs> up or down, Steve? Uh, I'm going to go with sideways. Oh. <laughs> oh well, there you go. No, it's difficult to say, isn't it? Because nobody cares about Disney making profit. What they do care about is Disney's, um, which is obviously driving gross profit. Um, you know, and gross margin is increasing at the rate they expect. I always find it strange how you predict subscribers. Mm. If, you, if you've not been given any of the data, how, how do you predict it? And also, I'll add on to that, it's unprecedented, right? The mm. streaming service is completely unprecedented. Mm. We've only got Netflix to go on. So how are we predicting it? Well, the- and we, we had this argument on the Discord, didn't we, I think? Uh, a few of us got involved in this one. How everyone is just ignoring the parks, and everyone is just ignoring the fact that their cruise ships are bleeding to death by just doing absolutely nothing. And I think Disney last year didn't have a PE ratio because it was in negative it didn't run a profit so how why are we able to just completely ignore that and then go okay there's this growth there's this growth uh, part to the business which is driving Disney to being 
it's is it about half of Netflix's uh, entire market cap right now? One of the things that it's worth like talking about with Disney is is that if, you can't forget about the core. The core is what you know what made Disney Disney, and Disney are the kings of merchandising everything to do with with the the characters that they create. And what's happening now is that Disney Plus has given them um, an avenue to release more characters to directly to more people at a discount rate. And pretty much anybody can afford Disney Plus. I think be hard pressed to see people not afford it through through the various methods in America and, and across the world. So all that's going to do is feed that merchandising machine more and more great characters. Um, and these characters are probably going to get more airtime than the characters of our past. I mean, if Disney's got, what was it, 103 million subscribers? 103 million subscribers watching, I don't know, whatever the next Marvel film is. Um, you know, they bring out Marvel figurines. They bring out Marvel bed covers. They bring out, you know, Marvel cups, Marvel lunchboxes. That great merchandising machine is just being fed again and again and again. So if we think the base price for Disney is 140 and the streaming service is whatever because you we're seeing good margins coming out of that evidently by the eps figures um i just think that i still think it's a cracking business i think it's going to be difficult to put a value on it today but for mm. the future i think you could see it being way in excess of where it is now so i've just had a little look and disney is down three percent on the news um that might be though because the market is anticipating that uh, we're recording this on thursday it might be the market's anticipating the friday sell-off perhaps Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, the, the famed Friday surf. No takeaways to buy. I feel like this was quite predictable, and I almost, I almost did take a bit of profit on Disney, but obviously I talked myself out of it. I went no long term, blah blah blah, and um, yeah, I did think this. I thought that the subscribers will be slower than than expected, or what we originally expected. And if it's if Netflix had anything to go by, it would have been that it slowed down. But so I think the, the growth of Disney's streaming business is, is obviously much bigger than Netflix is right now. So does this change your opinion on Netflix, though? Uh, no, not exactly. Um, it's really hard because I think that Disney and Netflix... While they, the, I, I essentially would put them in the same business. I, I would say that Disney's one third of their business, which is dedicated to streaming, is now worth as much as what you should. If, if people are saying that Netflix is worth five hundred billion, then surely that one third of Disney's business should be worth five hundred billion or close, and then the rest should be worth even more because of the things that you've also spoken about. And a lot of people are saying. Okay, so the cruise lines and that aren't going to be profitable for another 10 years. So that's going to be a bit of a loss leader at the moment. That's what I would probably put it down to. And on those ships, you're going to have all that merchandise and you might have something else. But I also wanted to discuss something else with you, an idea that might be uh, good going forward. Because a lot of people have accused it of its cannibalization. That's the problem with uh, AT&T and Time Warner and then obviously... Uh, Comcast as well, cannibalization of their movies, so they can't release them as well, or they're not going to be as effective going into cinemas anymore. So what do you think the answer to that for Disney would be? What have you got in mind for that? See, I don't 
personally care about that too much. I think cinemas are already in decline, and I think they've been in decline quite a long time, so bypassing cinemas to move into the house just seems like the right move for me. Mm. Um, I think quite a lot of the sort of synchronization costs with these cinemas is, is quite expensive, so cutting them out saves quite a decent chunk of, of budget, especially advertising budget and things like that. Um, but on the flip side, Disney just released a trailer the other day with about eight brand new Marvel movies on it that are all coming to the cinema. So they're not yeah. abandoning the cinema. They're not really cannibalizing it. I think they're just picking and choosing where to where to drop stuff. So if you love the cinema, you will still go to the cinema to watch Disney films so mm. long as there is a cinema there when you want to go. And this is what I was going to say, because I had a bit of an epiphany the other day, and I haven't really shared it because I thought uh, may, maybe I'm not the one who should be creating such outlandish ideas. But I'm thinking something like a vertical integration for Disney where they own their own cinemas of Mm. some sort. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm thinking like they have, maybe it's just small cinemas, like their Disney stores, just small cinemas where they've got one screen and they show a different film every couple of hours or something like that. And then they have lots of them dotted in very specific key areas that they know they can make profitable because they've already got Disney stores in those areas. And then you double up. You make them dual purpose by making them essentially a big Disney store. So as they walk out, as your customers walk out of that cinema, they walk through a line of merchandise. And I can imagine the parental pressure to buy those those dolls and whatever you want to sell right there i don't take my mom and dad to the cinema anymore paul (laughs) (laughs) yeah well i've never taken my children to the cinema because they're too young but i'm dreading that first day that i have to do it uh because i just don't know what it's going to be like but i can't think of a worse experience than taking them to a disney cinema where on the way out i've literally got to fight them to to not buy them any merch and, and, and I, was, I was having this epiphany because I was thinking about that. I was thinking, oh, my God, how am I going to have that conversation with my child that one day that he, he's already looking at Paw Patrol stuff and going, I want that, I want mm-hmm. that, I want that. And I'm going, oh, man, when he gets to Disney and Marvel and he starts putting, you know, he wants Hulk gloves and capes <laughs> and all this stuff. I don't know what, what it's going to be. And then I thought, whoa, what a target market for a cinema. Whoa, Disney could go vertical, reduce all its cannibalization and that uh, at that point i went that's the that's they must be thinking of that right i haven't just thought that off off the top of my head they must be must have been there for so now that's what i see disney i see them as having that additional i think i don't know amc will just go out the window maybe they could buy a couple of stores off them i, I don't know it's just something I'm thinking. Carry so on. that's what I was interested in. You were talking about them as though you kind of saw them as small one-screen things, and I wondered whether you kind of also saw them as maybe picking up some uh, cinemas off companies that are sort of fairly desperately distressed, like a lot of cinema companies they're, seem to be at the moment. They're too big, aren't they? Cinemas are too big. You've got I mean, like six, seven, eight screens. They are you, for your you, vision, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's cost, isn't it? You're making it profitable, and I, I, I'm guessing the only way cinemas are profitable is because they sell your chocolate at three, four, four, five times the price or popcorn. The margin on popcorn must be ridiculous, mm. right? Um, <clears throat> so I imagine that's the only way they're making money in these situations. And Should, 
that's not the mod that's not the model you'd want to follow for disney do you know who i think would be a good acquisition for disney um hang on uh <laughs> i want to have a decent guess at this somehow um, I know. Oh, it's, it's a stock oh, no i know i know what you're gonna say i know what you're gonna say is it bark box <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> unity is something i think would be a really good purchase for disney okay. because of the vr and the ar technology i think that would be um really interesting to see sort of virtual cinemas and things like that i think that would be a really interesting sort of like way to to blow the technology obviously you get the whole rest of unity's business which i think is is a very good business as well but they've sort of vr and ar capabilities would be would be really interesting to see what disney could do with that and disney wise you know, it's not just it's not just all flowers and snow white and, and all that stuff and fluffy toys and things. There there's more to it. Have you seen their robotics division? You must have no. caught something like that on Facebook. There's a surprising amount in this robotic I don't think it's there's no profit to it at all. It's all gonna go into their parts. But these robots are doing backflips and stuff and you're like, Ah, oh, interesting. And they you know, they're like they're doing stunts that humans probably wouldn't be able to do every day and for their like pirate adventure stuff and i thought i was like whoa they've got this whole wing and they're they're developing themselves it's not like they're partnering with a company for it they're developing all this stuff Hmm. Uh, i think there's so much more to come from disney and that's why i'm happy to rate it quite highly and maybe tomorrow if we see like a we've seen a three percent drop in aftermarket on its earnings I, i might pick up a little bit more I might see. It's very hard, like you say, to to value Disney at the, at its current price right now, especially when the parks and the crews and even the merchandise is so far behind what it should be. And it was overvalued. It was overvalued prior to COVID as well, and now it's just skyrocketed. Mm. But I I would, in my personal opinion, I would be happy to add somewhere close to Netflix's value on top of Disney right now. Maybe, you know, maybe shave off a third for, you know, to cope with cannibalization and stuff. But I would be more than happy to do that. I don't know if you would. I bought Disney at 170. Wow. Wow. Brave. Very, very brave. I think my average... My average is still one two five, but well, my average was one one six. So I have brought it up a little bit, but I did. Uh, I doubled the position when it was ISA ISA day, so my average yeah. is about one three five. Which fun fact, when I first opened my free trade account, was the same price I paid for it. So back in whenever that was, my average is one two three. Steve, your uh, nephew must be doing okay. Oh, he owns yeah. this, right? I was just going to have a quick look at that while you sort of like talk over me. <laughs> Fair enough. I'll carry on a little bit then for the moment. I mean, I kind of made a bit of a mess of Disney. I suddenly had a uh, a pretty good price on it. I had it at one, two, three, and I had about double what I currently have. But I looked at too much um, CNBC news in a kind of slightly immature state of thinking, and ended up ended up selling quite a lot of my various positions, thinking there was a crash coming, and then that didn't happen. And Disney's shot up since then, and I haven't bought it back. <laughs> Uh, so I spent most of my time working out try- how to try and undo that by finding some more companies rather than the ones that I thought were going to go down and didn't. I think that may even have been just before the Pfizer vaccine news, which made everything go ballistic. So I had to watch yeah. Paul live on YouTube talking about how much everything's gone up. <laughs> and I'm sat here thinking, yeah, I sold all of this stuff, like half of it yesterday <laughs> or something like that. Which is why we don't try and time markets, by the way. 
<laughs> yes, it's that's a very good example of FUD, uh, and it's something that I want to really talk. I'm I'm torn between what I'm going to make a video about tomorrow, and it could all be about FUD, and you might have just given me a great little. Oh great! Just as an aside, his average price on Disney is one oh five. Oh, nice! Boy, he's killing it. Uh, to be fair, my my average was about eighty, eighty nine or whatever. I got him really, really early on the COVID crash uh, with Disney, but now I I kept on adding as as, as much as I could. And I ended up at about 120. I the the, I the idea behind that is that, that we would contribute to his first car, but I think at 105, he's going to end up with a Porsche when he's 18. <laughs> Quite possibly, yeah. You know, I mean, how old, how old is he right now? Three. Three. Mm. Mate, oh, man. You know, you're talking 10 years, uh, 15 years of compounding on Disney at that rate. Whoa, it's gonna and be... We're adding the grand sum of £10 a month as well. Nice. Ooh. Yeah, but that's all you need at that young, right? Is all you need. Uh, that young, you don't need anything. But okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, but like what what I'm what I'm scared of is we, we might go over a bit on the recording now. But I, what I'm scared of is what I did with the money. Eighteen, I had my uh, my my grandparents made me a little account back in the eighties when they had like I think my interest on that account was about 13% when they first opened it. And gradually over the years, it went lower and lower. And I think in the end, it only ended up at about £2,000 because going through when I got to 18, going into the late 90s, um, the interest rate was terrible at that point. And it didn't end up with a lot of money. So I I think I just blew it on a laptop to go to university with. and, And that was that. I would like, if I did make an ISA, and it's a reason why I haven't made a junior ISA for my kids yet, I would like them to have the education so they continue it on. So they, like with your nephew, he, I, I would wonder if you got him to like 16, 17, and you were still talking to him or whatever, that you would educate him and say, well, do you want to keep this? Do you want to keep it in here for the rest of your life? Or do you want to go blow it on? Hookers and blow while you're 18, 19, 20. What do you want to do? The thing is, if he's into hookers and blow, I'll just use the money to buy his mum a bunch of flowers. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, I, 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 I do worry about that. I, I, I do worry that at 18, they, maybe it's just my education and how I grew up and how I was... Because I think people, when I got that money given to me, from that trust account and it and it was only two it sounds amazing but it was only two thousand pound it was around that everyone said to me oh buy yourself a laptop for this or, or for university or something like that and now i'm thinking man i should have just invested it i wish someone was there to tell me how else i could have used that money hmm. uh, mm. uh, sorry it's just a, a, a I agree with that. final thought yeah I mean, in fairness i kind of this is one of the things and steve and i have both talked about kind of wanting to set things up for are um, people that we're in some way kind of connected to. So in my case, it's godchildren. In his case, it's nephews. And I think we, we totally agree with you that the, the kind of education that comes with it is important when the time comes. And it feels like something that maybe I didn't quite get at that time because I have parents who basically thought, and not just parents, people of that generation around me who uh, basically just think stocks are ways to 
kind of go up a bit and then lose a load of money because they crash. And they're kind yeah. of right in some cases. But in fairness to them, uh, and this is a point that's only really dawned on me recently, they were thinking of during the 80s when I was born, if I was getting 13% in cash, I'd be thinking pretty carefully about stocks as well. I'd want a really good price if I was going to turn, turn down a 13% risk-free rate. I kind of think... Do I really need the risk associated with equities in that? And then, as you point out, the kind of rate just slid down and down and down and down until the point where equities become more and more and more attractive. But when I'm thinking about why people kind of the generation up from me don't seem to know this kind of thing, the world was wildly different then, it seems. You could get 13% just by instant access cash stuff. And yeah, I'd probably do that if I could. I, yeah. I love that you've gone there. I love that you've gone there because like halfway through that, I was thinking their their risk equity premium was totally different to ours. It's, yeah, but it's it, also yeah. the the accessibility as well, isn't it? I mean, you got to think to buy a yeah. stock, you probably had to phone up somebody who placed the order for you once you'd sent them a postal order. So it's a different world. Yeah, in fact, in fact, you've you've yeah you've opened you've opened that up to me there because my risk equity premium has been different to them. For at least 20 years, uh, because I couldn't make anything in a bank account now for, for since the early 90s, so I didn't know about it, and I didn't have access with you know open accounts like Trading 212, or I probably had Vanguard or um, Hargreaves Lansdowne. I probably did have access to that, but I didn't know. So there's your education. So maybe that in the previous generation would be something to think about. But yeah, you're right. By the uh, you know I'm 35 now. I think I was. 35 about three days ago uh, i don't know de- time doesn't exist in my world <laughs> oh congratulations uh, yeah. Really yeah happy, happy birthday Woo. um yeah so i'm 35 now and i've only just started to learn what this whole game is and it did oh, in my head probably for the past 10 years i've thought oh i can only make 0.01 percent in a bank account and and i didn't know of anything else so Maybe it is to do with the generation not passing down the information or not being able to pass down the information. But like you say, their their risk premium was totally different to ours uh, back then. And that, and that was the best thing to do. Right? <laughs> the thing is as well is that the FCA is quite well regarded in the UK, isn't it? It's quite, it's seen as an, it's definitely seen as an authority. And they say mm. there's, a, there's a warning on stocks. Um, there's, a, there's a warning that, even when you tweet about stocks, yeah, as a company, you have to put it at the bottom of it. And if you take that at face value, it basically says stocks are a piece of shit and you're going to lose all your money. Um, you, know who, you know who else? Just touching on that. Martin Lewis. Do we, can we talk about Martin Lewis for a couple of minutes? Hmm? Because he doesn't consider investing in any way. He doesn't. No. He, he, he only talks about saving. Now, is that a generational thing or is that because he finds it too risky to on his program to talk about investing. I think it is genuinely that he is terrified that someone is going to do something that he probably presented accurately, right? Probably said, yes, there is a risk, but look, here are the kind of, just here are the historic returns on these kind of things or something like that for the moment. And if you do that and enough people see it, someone is going to buy at the wrong time and someone is going to lose money in that situation. Um, and then they're going to go absolutely mad at you. And I think it must just be a kind of, put this way, I don't think he doesn't know uh, this kind yeah. of stuff. He's not He's not undereducated in this situation. He, he understands. He understands investment. Yeah, he, and I don't think a, he's... He had a company that's listed, so he knows what it's all about. And um, 
a story that I saw from him because I listened. To, I used to listen to his podcast. I don't get to listen to it much anymore. But there was one that happened, the one episode quite a while ago, where he a question came in from a couple, and they said that this was right on the COVID crisis, right on the crash, that they had a lifetime inv- uh, ISA invested. I think it was a lifetime or, or an ISA invested, and. It was for their daughter's university fund. That was they were going to pay for their their daughter's university fund. It was about eighteen thousand pound. But in the crash, it was invested in an S and P broad based index fund. In the crash, it crashed completely, and they were writing in to say, "Well, what should I do? What should I? What should I do?" His advice on March thirty first. I think that was the date that it came out. His advice was take it all out and put it into a high-interest savings account. Hmm. And that's what he said to them on that episode. And I've been me- I meant to... Because I was making videos at that time, and I thought, this is the worst advice ever. This is the stupidest advice ever. And I was going to make a big video of it, but he deletes the, they delete the podcast hmm. uh, after a certain amount of days, and I couldn't get the recordings back, so I never made the video. But I was so shocked. That He's wholly he unqualified that. to offer that advice as well, I would believe, isn't he? I, I don't know. I, I Maybe he's too qualified to offer that advice because I don't know if he's a financial advisor and I don't know if that would have been against or for the... But, but they de- they would have definitely taken this advice because it was on his podcast and I thought, oh my God, you're going to ruin their lives. And then obviously Ice Day came over. It smacked up 10% in one day and then everyone knows the story of 2020. That, that he he would have lost them 18 19 grand not not to mention what they would have lost in opportunity cost and so on and i know i'm banging on about martin lewis here but i think his target market is he's he seems to be part of the problem that he keeps people in their little hole he keeps working class people in their little in their he's little a hole. he's a bit like dave ramsey i, I think that he's an expert in getting you out of debt yeah from that point onwards it's time to leave him and, and go somewhere else <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think David Ramsey, Dave Ramsey, uh, Dave Ramsey does say index funds. I think once you he doesn't out of the debt. No, Dave Ramsey is mutual funds. He uh, by okay. by the mutual funds that are performing the best is his investment advice. Oh, okay, all right. That's probably terrible advice then. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting one. Sorry to just uh, end it on that way. We will end it there because we've we've gone on lots of different tangents. But thank you very much for listening. You, uh, thank you very much for putting yourself through that <laughs> that last little bit there of us just ripping Martin Lewis. Uh, you can listen to this if you wanted to on the on the podcast on Apple, Audible, Google. And the, the other, other one, Spotify. <laughs> and obviously, you can see us on. Yeah, you can see us on YouTube. If you're watching this on YouTube, please leave a comment below, like and subscribe, all that stuff, and uh, tell us what you think about Martin Lewis. That's what I, I want to know. What people <laughs> think about Martin Lewis? You tell me what you think about Martin Lewis because I think he's outdated now. Martin Lewis. Martin who is? Martin who? <laughs> Uh, thank you very much for watching everybody and we'll see you next week with Zach (laughs) I'm amazed how many people own stocks
follow me, some people own stocks. The sucker's going up. <laughs>